Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the word, for its power in our life, for the way it has brought us to know of you, to know you, to serve you, and to be able to witness to you, Father. All those things have been made possible because you've revealed yourself through your word. And I thank you, Father, that you continue to uphold and carry on this small fellowship here in Austin, Father, that you've preserved us and continue to preserve us, and not for our own sake, but, Father, because we have put your spirit and your truth at the forefront of what we do and because we endeavor, Father, to share it with others and to be true to it in our own lives, these things, Father, bless your name and, and uh, spread your, your truth to others and, and demonstrate your glory to the world. And I pray, Father, you continue to give us the mission to do that. And thank you, Father, for strengthening us in that mission with the gifts of those who've gathered and with the numbers that continue, Father, to, to help us with new talent, new, new abilities. Father, I praise you for giving us that encouragement and that strength every week. And, uh, Father, I pray that we wouldn't let it go to waste, that we are mindful that days are short, opportunity is fleeting. You have poured out your grace for a reason, Father. I Don't let us squander it. And this morning, Father, we turn our attention to what you've prepared in your word through the writer of Hebrews. And in this first chapter, I pray, Lord, that what we see on this page would would strike us in a new and different way, something that opens our heart to things you want us to know and perhaps things you'd ask us to do differently in our life. Let the word have its effect, its purpose in our life, Father, as we give our full attention to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week in my introduction to this letter, I said that this would be a study in contrasts. That would be the primary method that the teacher uses, the writer uses, to help illuminate his points. The contrasts are going to center on the differences between the old ways in which God gave instruction concerning himself to men and the new way, that being through Christ. And we said last week, the old ways, they're not wrong. They were just incomplete. They were portions, the writer called them, given to men, to the fathers, and they were designed as stepping stones. I use that picture of stepping stones in which you're moving in a direction God has intended through steps of knowledge, steps of revelation. But, of course, if it's a path, then that begs the question, where's the path leading to? And we get that right up front in this letter. In the first four verses of this letter, the writer makes clear that all of that past revelation was leading to Christ. And that with his arrival with the words he gave, with the life he led, with his fulfilling work on the cross, all that those old things were telling were given in their full form in Christ. So the writer's goal in writing this letter, as we said last week, is to persuade Jewish believers in his day and all believers since to abandon devotion to older ways and lean entirely instead on Christ in the new covenant. And last week I pointed out that this letter is squarely focused on differences between what came in the old covenant versus the new. And that's certainly true. And in fact, we said there are still Christians today, Gentile Christians, who need to hear this message because they have an unhealthy interest in the things of the old. I call it a romanticized interest in Judaism. You may know some of these folks. You may have friends who have this background. They love the law. They love the festivals. They love the language, the culture, the teachings of Judaism. And, of course, there are many good things to be learned in all of those things. Certainly the law, the word of God is is always instructive and helpful. But for some reason, they lean on it to the point where it becomes spiritually unhealthy. They begin to emphasize the necessity of those old things. Not merely their usefulness, but their necessity, even to the point of trying to combine the old and the new in violation of the parable Jesus taught concerning putting 
new wine in old wineskins. That is trying to combine the old covenant and the new in some unhelpful way. So for those Christians, this letter is still very relevant, very pertinent. It's still dealing with those same misunderstandings, and it stands as a witness against that thinking. But for those of us, and I assume for the most part, it's the vast majority of us in this room who have no unhealthy interest in the old, who have not embraced it and tried to bring it along as baggage into the new. How do we understand this letter? How does this letter speak to us if we're not entrapped in that way? Well, as I said last week, we're still going to find a lot to learn from what the writer says here, in particular in the way the writer punctuates what he says in this letter with five well-known warnings. And we'll get to these in turn as we move through the letter. But in each case, these warnings will follow from an example that the writer is going to teach in which you find a Christian failing to move along a path of spiritual maturity. In the case of these readers, it was largely around the immaturity of clinging to the law. But we have our own forms of immaturity in the body, which ultimately lead to the same warnings and the same concerns for failure to mature. So as we look at these warnings, don't think for a minute that the fact that you're not necessarily romanticizing Jewish history, that doesn't mean you're free from the dangers of these warnings. These warnings deal with the problem of not growing spiritually. The way I like to put it is if you're not going forward, you're going backward. So we're going to pick up in the middle of a verse because of the way the writer chose to write it and the way the canon chose to separate the verses. We're really at the middle of a verse in chapter one, verse three, when we start the next thought, which leads to the rest of the chapter. And so let's start there. I'll just read verses three and four as we begin and then into the rest of the chapter as we go. The writer says, speaking of Jesus, of course, he says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. As I said, we've already looked at the first half of chapter one, verse three. So the writer finishes in his description of the greatness of Christ and the fact that he is the one who has created all things. And then you notice he says Christ is the one who upholds everything by the word of his power. That's the place where we pick up this morning. Paul says something very similar in Colossians at the beginning of Colossians chapter one. He says this verses 16 and 17. He says, for by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created. And that echoes what this writer says and what John said. And then Paul goes on, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then Paul adds, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And that's similar to what we just saw this writer say. Jesus is the member of the Godhead. And we said last week he is the one and only member of the triune God who has responsibility for the creation process. When we say God created all things, we're really saying Christ. When we're saying God is the creator, we're saying Christ is the creator. By his word, the word being Christ, all things were created. All things now, we're told, are being held together by him as well. Now, it's really natural for you and I to hear those words and to come away with this assumed interpretation that Christ is up in heaven right now, actively holding the universe together as if if he weren't doing that, it would all just fall apart and deteriorate in a second. 
And, of course, Christ's power is ever-present in the universe, but that's not actually the accurate interpretation of this verse because in the Greek, that's not what's being said most literally. The world is created by the word of Christ. After the creation process finished on day six, what did the Lord do? He rested. He ceased from his work. He sat down, we're told, at the right hand of the Father, as you see at the end of verse three. He sits down, indicating he's finished with his creative work. That draws, by the way, on a common image in the day this letter was written. In a home, a master would not work around the slaves. The slaves did the work for the master. And the master would sit himself down at a table while the servants served him standing. And this is a very powerful image in the culture when this letter was written. A seated person, by definition, is someone who's not working. A working person never sat. They stayed standing. Again, as an indication that they were on duty. So Jesus, according to Scripture is not actively working for his creation at this point in the sense of making it exist, creating it. All that's done. He sat down. He's finished. What the writer is saying is creation existed because of the power of God's word, because it was created in that way in the first place. And the Greek word for uphold carries this meaning of carrying forward. So the full sense of these words, if I want to round all this together, is Christ brought the world into existence by the power of his word. And that same word, having once been spoken, is always carrying the creation forward to its appointed end, like on a path. Christ's word made the ship and Christ's word is still steering it to its intended port, to its intended outcome. That's what the writer is saying. God's in control. He made it. It's got a purpose. It's headed to its purpose according to the same word that created it. And it will reach that purpose. And in the meantime, the Lord Christ has assumed a position seated at the right hand of the Father as the most important person next to the Father himself. Any time you see the right hand referenced in Scripture, it's the position of highest honor relative to the one who's in the center. So whoever's to the right of God is the most high person after the father himself. That position, Hebrews says, was assigned to the son. Now, what the writer is doing is he's building something very carefully here, almost like a prosecutor laying out a case before a jury. And he's building in steps. And if you just take each of these steps by themselves, they won't mean much to you necessarily. When you lay them all out in a course, you get to a very powerful conclusion, which is what this writer is doing. So you have... The word, the creator, the maker of all things, who once he was done, sat down in the most privileged position relative to the father. All creation, therefore, owes its existence to him. All creation has a purpose and he is orchestrating it or attending to it that it gets to its intended outcome. He's guiding it. You've heard probably some people who have a view of God that thinks, yes, God exists and yes, he made things. But then they go off the rails from Scripture And they think that God has spun a top and now he's sat back and to watch, see what happens. That there's no control of anything now that it's working, but it was merely God starting it all. And then now the rest, I guess, is up to us. That's not how the Bible portrays him and God in general. The writer is here to address that, that Christ is in control. And now he moves into his first contrast, having given us this background, having set up his argument. And that is this. If Jesus is the creator of all things and If he is second in importance only to the father, then logically we must conclude that nothing in creation is greater than he is. Simple conclusion, right? If he made everything and he is seated at the right hand of the only thing that is not made, 
then by definition, everything that is made must be less than him. For there's nothing between him and the father in terms of positional authority. And he's the creator of everything. It makes perfect sense, right? Look what the writer says next. He says he is the name above all names. Now, we sing that and perhaps we pray that and we sort of understand it. But now you're going to get the fullest sense of what that term means. Names are only given to created things. Names are only given to created things. When God created the animals, he asked Adam to give them names. When we make something, we name it. Names are an indication that something has a beginning and a creator. God, the Father, and God, the Spirit, have never been created in the sense that they've never become incarnate, and therefore they do not have names. What does God call himself when he talks to Moses? He says, I am that I am. No one names me. I exist before creation. There's no one above me to name me. I do not have a name in that sense. But the second person of the Godhead, Christ, though he was in the beginning with the Father and he is eternal from the beginning of all creation, there's no time in which he was created. That's not what I'm implying. But in his incarnation, at the moment he took on flesh, he was named by the Father, Yeshua, Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus. Being the created member of the Godhead in the sense of incarnation, in the sense of taking the form of man, Christ willingly left the position he had at the right hand of the Father to enter into his own creation, the thing he made he entered into. And as he did that, he was named. As such, he is the name above all names. Within the universe of everything that's been created by God, he has the most prominent position in that creation. This is an important concept for the Jew because for the Jew, the concept that something could be created, have a beginning, be born, walk the earth as Christ did, necessarily lowered that person in the Jew's eyes compared to things that had never had that beginning, like an angel in their mind or like God himself. How could the Messiah, Christ, be equal to an angel or even equal to God himself when he has a name? When he's been created, when he had a beginning, when he walked the earth like men, certainly he's important. Obviously, he is key to God's purpose in Israel. We get that, but he can't be equal to the heavenly realm that never had such a beginning. The writer has to contend with that, and he's doing so in this logical fashion. He says, God the Father is not named, nor the Spirit, but the Son is because of his purpose in coming. And yet, he is the name above all. All names in verse four, the writer says Jesus has a more excellent name than angels. Now, this is where he begins to make that contrast. This is is the first chapter is all about dealing with the misconception in Judaism over the importance of angels relative to the importance of Christ. The word angel in scripture, both in Hebrew and in Greek, just means messenger. Literally, it's the word for messenger. Angels were a prominent feature in Jewish religious life. Uh, They were second in importance only to God himself in the way Jews perceived them religiously. By the time Jesus came to earth, Jewish culture had practically venerated angels. You know, to venerate something means to elevate it to the point of worshiping it. We can see this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. The Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient writings of Jewish scripture that were protected by the Essenes, a sect of Judaism that lived shortly after the time of Christ walked the earth. They were found at Quoram, which is that cave that you may know about in the desert. And when they were found in pots, they were revealed to have very accurate copies of Scripture. Almost all the books of Scripture were represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what you may not know is there were also extra-biblical scrolls. 
scrolls that are not part of the Bible, things that they were protecting as scripture, but you and I would not consider scripture and nor would God. One of them was called the angel scroll, reportedly written by angels. Another one was reportedly written in their minds by the archangel Michael, Michael's scroll. And you can see that same unhealthy focus on angels reflected even today in our culture, at least in some circles. I think there's a re-emergence of fascination in angels in some Christian circles. If you want to check that out or if you want to see if I'm right or not, just go to your local Christian bookstore and ask for the section on angels. They have one. Some call certain angels their guardian angel. You ever met someone who says, I have a guardian angel? You remember Ark Link letter? If you do, don't admit it because you're just showing your age. But he used to do this thing where he'd ask little kids questions and then the kids would always give funny answers, right? You can always get an interesting answer. That was done one time with, tell me what you know about angels. And I just was going to give you a couple of them because they're just cute, but they do reflect, I think, the breadth of misunderstanding about these messengers. One kid said, when an angel gets mad, he takes a deep breath and counts to ten, and then when he lets his breath out, somewhere there's a tornado. I think he's getting the bell thing mixed up, right? Angels work for God and watch over kids when God has something else to do. And I think a lot of us think like that. Actually, I think that's pretty close to a lot of us think. My guardian angel helps me with math, but he's not very good at science. Yeah, I know I have that same angel. This is my favorite one. Angels talk to you all the while while they're flying you up to heaven after you die. The main subject they talk about is where you went wrong before you got dead. <laughs> I love that one. You know, what's funny is that kid's got a decent sense of theology there. He just, he's off a little bit, but he knew that the angels carry us to heaven. One more, the kid says, I only know the names of two angels, Hark and Harold. <laughs> okay, enough of that. And so we do laugh, and it's fun, and there's certainly a, a little bit of what I call Hallmark card culture when it comes to the topic of angels. But in this case, the fascination was far more dangerous than just the Hallmark cards and the, and the ornaments on a Christmas tree. These people, and, and particularly the writer's concern here is for a certain group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were really struggling with the deity of Christ. And of course, if you struggle with the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian. I mean, in the sense that if you haven't accepted that as a statement of fact, then you're still a step short of knowing the Lord as Lord, right? And that's the concern the writer begins with. He's not talking necessarily to unbelievers. Generally, this letter is a letter to the church. But there are going to be moments, and this is the key one in the letter, in which he's raising concerns that cut to the core of what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Who is he? What does he represent? What did his death mean? And so Jewish culture becomes so fascinated that they had noticed something about the way God used angels historically in the Old Testament, and that Detail had caused them to put an unhealthy emphasis on the old rather than on the new. And here's what I mean by that. They noticed that whenever God wanted to deliver an important message to men in the Old Testament days, he often used an angel to communicate that message. And when you know how this worked, right? Angels would appear to men. And what's the first reaction that this angel would engender out of the person? Fear, right? I mean, we've talked about that in past weeks here in other studies. There was that standard greeting that came with every appearance of an angel. Greetings, do not fear. Right? It was just the natural next thing they would say out of their mouth. I like to imagine that the angels walk around in heaven with the little blue and white name tags that say, Hello, I'm Michael, do not fear, right underneath. Because it was a standard requirement. Everyone got fearful. So you see this pattern in Scripture. When God had something important to say, send an angel. Angel comes, men fear them. Men often reach the point of worshiping them. 
As we heard in the scripture reading this morning, there's even times when John, an apostle who knew Christ, didn't think properly in the moment and fell down to worship an angel. But the angels always have the same reaction. They always say, get up quick, 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 before anyone sees you, because the last time someone had an angel get worshipped around here, bad things happened after that. Get up. They come bearing messages from God. So as we look across all the major moments of revelation that you can find in the Old Testament, you're going to find angels often serving as messengers. In fact, here's a little test. I want you to listen and see what you would have answered, although you probably know where I'm going, so the answers will be obvious. Who spoke to Hagar in the desert and told her to return in chapter 21 of Genesis? An angel. Who spoke to Abraham when he was about to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain and told him to stop? An angel. Who told Jacob and Rachel to leave Laban and return to Canaan? An angel. Who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? It says an angel. Who went ahead of the Israelites in a pillar of cloud in the desert? An angel. Who protected Daniel in the lion's den? An angel. Who spoke to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey? An angel. And who told Gideon to rise up and defeat the Midianites? You know, an angel. In all cases, it's an angel. Now, in particular, in most of those cases, you find that angel described in a very unique way. The angel of the Lord. And as you remember from past teachings in here, that's no ordinary angel, right? That term is the Old Testament term for the second person of the Godhead. That is Christ himself pre-incarnate. So in reality, those moments were not exactly as they appeared to the Average person just skimming through the Old Testament, they hear angel, angel, angel. They think these are angels. We know it's more than that. But the point is the same to the Jew. If you ask them when God has something really, really important to say to you, how does he deliver it? And the answer is always the same. Well, of course, by an angel. So when I come to you and I say, well, God delivered something even greater through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You say, well, I'm sure it was very great, Steve, but he wasn't an angel. So it can't be that great. You see, the message delivered by angels must supersede the message delivered by a mere man, even if that man was our Messiah. So the writer now has to convince the readers first that Messiah, that the promised one of the Old Testament was always intended to be a greater thing than the angels. And having done that, then the writer will be in a position to say, now pay greater attention to his message because he was a greater messenger than the angels. And so what he does now is he uses, in a sense, the Jewish culture's own words against itself, if you will. He takes the Old Testament and lays it out in such a way that he proves that your own scriptures, Jew, tell you that the Messiah was always to be greater than angels were. That you can be sure that when the Messiah came, he would have a greater message. And don't take my word for it. Go to your own scripture. Look at verses 5 through 13. This is a series of Old Testament quotes designed to make this point. The writer writes in verse five, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today? I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. 
But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You can see the argument, can't you? You can see how he has contrasted one with the other and made clear from the beginning that the scriptures always foretold of a Messiah greater than angels. Let's just run through them real quickly and I'll cite which Old Testament passages they are so you can perhaps put that in the notes of your Bible. By the way, you'll notice the writer uses something here very interesting. I think it's interesting. It's called an inclusio. That's a fancy word for bracketing in language, a, a almost parenthetical bracketing to show you this is a single argument. And you see that inclusio by looking at the beginning of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 13. They both start with the same phrase. To which of the angels did he ever say? To which of the angels has he ever said? Those two phrases form the left and right brackets, if you will, around this argument, sort of putting them in a section of their own. And then as you move through this section, beginning in verse 5, the writer begins with his proofs. First one is Psalms 2, 7, where God in that psalm speaks of the Messiah, this coming Messiah, as his son. Now, the word son's used in different ways in Scripture. There's times when God the Father calls believers sons of God. There's times where he calls angels sons of God. But there's only one time that he calls someone his son, singular. And that is only in reference to the Messiah. And then, of course, he goes beyond that. And he says he is the only begotten of the Father. If you've heard that word and wonder, well, what did that exactly mean? In Greek, it's monogenes, and that literally means the one who comes forth from the Father. The one who comes forth. No one else has ever come forth from the Father, nor will come forth from the Father to represent the Godhead. Christ and Christ alone, the Messiah, was that one. And so Psalms 2 says, number one, he never spoke to an angel and called him a son. He never spoke to an angel and said, this one's begotten of me. But he did say that about the Messiah. Point number two, verse six, the writer draws from Deuteronomy 32:43. Now, this will give us a chance to learn a little bit about translation variations for this reason. This writer always quotes from which version of the Old Testament? We said this last week. The Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Seventy. Jewish elders were assigned the job of coming together and translating the Jewish Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek because so many Jews in that day now were Hellenistic Jews. They had come under Greek culture and they didn't even know Hebrew, but they knew Greek. So the Septuagint, Septuagint just means the 70 because it was translated by 70 men. The Septuagint is the version he quotes from. Now, why is that important? Well, I told you this next proof in verse six comes from Deuteronomy 32:43. If you were to go to that verse in your Bible right now, your English Bible, 3243 of Deuteronomy, it will not read like the writer just quoted it. And as a result, it won't make any sense. Let me read you what the Septuagint says for that verse. Deuteronomy 3243. Rejoice heavens with him and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice Gentiles with his people. Let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him for he will avenge the blood of his sons. And he will render vengeance and recompense justice to his enemies and will reward them who hate him. And the Lord shall purge the land of his people. He says, let the angels of God worship the Messiah. If God said to his Messiah, you are going to be worshipped by the angels and they're going to serve you. Clearly, he's a superior person to any angel. Makes perfect sense, right? Verse 8 through 12 is the next proof. And this is, again, very simple and straightforward. The writer contrasts the impermanence. The passing value of an angel with the permanent, eternal presence of Christ. Angels have never been called God, and yet 
the Messiah was. Angels have no thrones, but it says the Messiah will have a throne. Angels get very nervous anytime somebody dares worship them, as we've already pointed out. But everyone is going to worship the Messiah. So at this point in the analysis, it's very clear that the angels are less than God and that Messiah sits at his right hand as the preeminent name within all of creation. That much to be obvious, right? I want to stop just in a moment here and take a little aside to something this writer says, which is very interesting, not directly related to this argument, but does play a role in our understanding of creation itself. Look in verses 10 through 12. You'll notice the writer quoting here from Psalms 102. And he says, unlike the creation itself, the Lord will never come to an end. He will never wear out. But in speaking of the creation, notice what the writer says. The creation itself has a time limit. It's like a garment. It's going to wear out one day. And as it wears out, it's approaching the point where it's going to be changed. Like garments being changed. Like I take off what I'm wearing now and I put on something new. Now we should know from our study of Genesis, this is a reference to the curse God spoke upon the earth in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall in the garden. When Adam's sin was discovered, God said, because of you, the earth is cursed. The earth being the ground. Literally speaking, everything in the earth or on the earth comes from the earth. And that started in the beginning. Remember the creation process? God called forth all the plant life. It grew from the ground. It owes its existence to the ground. But even more than that, remember the animals? In chapter 2 of Genesis, when we're given the detail on how God formed the animals, brought them to man, and asked him to name them, do you remember the detail of where the animals came from? What did God use to start when he made the animals? It says from the dirt of the ground. So the animals were formed from the dirt. Of course, we know Adam was formed from the dirt as well. And woman came out of Adam. So everything that exists, plants, animals, people, and of course, anything we've built has come from the material of the ground. Literally, the earth and all that's on it owes its origin to the dirt. And when God pronounced that curse in Genesis 3 on the earth, he was cursing. And when we say curse, we mean it is due to come to an end. By that word of God, the curse, the earth must end. It must come to an end. For our bodies, that means physical death. For animals, it means physical death. For plants, it means they go away too. And the earth as well must end. We know that in Revelation that there will be a new heavens and a new earth to follow this one when God is ready for that, at the end of the millennial kingdom. The point is, God has created in the curse a necessity that things come to an end. But more than that, in the manner of its end, God has produced a grace to the unbeliever. Remember when God said that everything would have to be cursed and come to its end? You remember how he said that would happen, though? He said, from dust you've come and to dust you will return. In that phrase is built in the concept of gradual death. He didn't say to Adam, you ate from the tree, your body dies now. No, he lived 900 years. And even in successive generations, we've seen people living less time. But still, you don't die right away. You live for a while, then you die. And not just the body, but even the physical creation itself wears out. By the pronouncement of the curse, God instituted what we now call the second law of thermodynamics. That all energy goes from higher states of order to lower states of order. Everything wears out. Everything decays. We take it for granted. It's just a part of the natural world we see. We can study it. We can name it a law. We can work with it. But we don't ever question why it is. Scripture says it is because God pronounced that that's the way the world would come to its end in this gradual process. 
And you can see it around you. I mean, first of all, look at your bodies. You know, you're getting older. You're falling apart. You know, I'm with you on that. It's going to happen. But even things like your house, your car, your yard, your clothes, everything gets worse. Even if you put it in a pristine environment, it still gets worse over time. You're fighting against the word of God if you're trying to fix that problem. There is an intentional decaying process, wearing out process in place, in creation, as a part of the curse. Why? Again, why does God want us to see things falling apart slowly? Because by that indication, something we call entropy, we come to understand that life is not permanent, that everything comes to an end, that putting your trust in this world is folly, that storing up your treasure on earth leaves it vulnerable to moth and rust and decay and thieves, that trusting in anything of the physical creation is a worthless form of trust. It's no trust at all. And that because we know we're coming to an end and everything else around us, we are face to face with the reality of what comes after death. I find it interesting that people have a lifetime to contemplate their death. It's spiritually valuable, at least it can be. I've often said that living a perfectly healthy life is just the slowest possible way to die because it doesn't stop the end anyway. To the believer, it's something we celebrate in the sense that we recognize it's the end of a bad thing to then allow for a very good thing. Or as we've said here in the past, to the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. But the problem for the unbeliever is it's exactly the opposite. For those who don't know Christ yet as Lord, this life is as good as it gets. And it's not very good. God has given men reasons to contemplate their mortality, the judgment that follows death, the necessity to be reconciled with God before it's too late, the folly of investing and trusting in a world that's falling apart. All of these things have been built into the creation by the word of God from the beginning to give us cause to think about spiritual matters. One day, the writer says, he will bring all his enemies to a final end. He will conquer sin and death. And the writer's final proof is that the Messiah is the highest, the greatest name above all names, seated at the right hand of the Father. Only the Messiah has the power to win the victory over the very thing that's leading all of us to decay and death. In verse 13, the writer finishes his inclusio, and he quotes, in the last one for the day, from Psalms 110, arguably the greatest messianic psalm, pound for pound, It's only seven verses, but it's packed with descriptions of Christ, including the one that's quoted here, that he will remain seated in this place of honor to the right hand of the Father until all God's enemies are under Christ's feet. In other words, Christ ruling over creation is going to keep going and continue until all the enemies of God are gone. We studied that in 1 Corinthians, if you remember. This is an honor and an authority no one else in creation can possibly equal, certainly not angels. The Lord made all things. He controls all things. He'll defeat all enemies. He is the one who lowered himself to assume a name in creation, and yet that name is above all names, so that he could stand in our place, so that he could take the curse of the creation in his own body, so he could do it on our behalf instead of us. And then he rose again to fulfill his mission to destroy the enemies of God. That is the Messiah, the one and only one an angel could never hope to compare to. Now, next time we get back into the book of Hebrews, we'll pick up at this point and into chapter two with the writer now doing what he's going to do repeatedly, which is having made his point. He's not interested in any more argument. The point has been made now with that truth. What do we do with that? For you and I, there's not a dispute over the fact that Christ is greater than an angel. At least I hope not. And if there had been, I hope this has settled it for you. But in other respects, 
we can be tempted, even without understanding that we're doing this, we can be tempted to diminish Christ's power in our life relative to some other source of power. Luck, chance, our own efforts, the enemy. How many Christians have I heard referring to Satan in a way that suggests Satan's power is somehow in contention with Christ? And some days Satan's winning and some days Christ is winning. I mean, that in itself is a kind of version of this thinking in which I have elevated something in the spiritual realm, at least to an equality, if not to a greater position than Christ. And as a result, its effect in my life is to compromise my spiritual maturity and my walk of faith. It creates doubts. It creates worries that don't need to be there. And those things change my behavior. That's what the writer's concern is. And we'll get to that next time in chapter two. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the assurance and the confidence we have that the Lord is seated at your right hand. And that as he sits there, Father, having done the work of creation, nevertheless, his word is still active, guiding his creation, steering it to its intended finish. A finish, Father, that still sees us in the forefront of his plan as those who would serve him now and reign with him in the creation that comes after this one. I thank you, Father, for that privilege and for the grace that made it possible. And I thank you, Lord, for the writer who reminds us that nothing can compare with the power and the glory and the authority of Christ. And that he who lives in us is so much stronger than he who is in the world that these things should not even cause a concern in our mind. That no matter what the body may face in this life, Father, the spirit is in your hands and in one day a new body that no one can touch. I thank you, Father, for that blessing. Continue to give us that strength. Let us walk in that faith, Father. Let us minister to others in the confidence we have so that we might be an encouragement to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.